If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Academic Roundtable of Pop Culture Analysis with Drinking and Swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And I am once again here with all of the co-hosts. We have Wayne and Hannah and Katya. How's it going, guys? Hey. I'm so happy we're all back together for the holidays. (laughs) The game's all back together. Yeah, it's kind of What's the holidays mean? We're nobody being able to gather. This is the same way we gather for the holidays every year. So, you know, great. I I I we just the singularities happen. We all just become avatars. It's gonna be great. <laughs> I have chestnuts ro- roasting, so mm. don't let I don't those actually burn. know how to. I mean, and see, like I assumed that was a joke, but then I think about where you're from, and I I believe you could be roasting <laughs> chestnuts right now. <laughs> That's a thing that like you, that one might do from your home. <laughs> I don't know how. I, I I wouldn't even know how to. Ro- I mean, can you just take a like a bunch of chestnuts and stick them in an oven and that does something? I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure if you do something wrong, they explode. Really? I mean, I, you could be lying, you could be telling the truth, but I'm just like, oh, fascinating. <laughs> I come from the city. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I am not a chestnut expert. I am among my many talents. That's not what I'm going to. I'm going to just let you sit with that and see how long it takes you to figure out. I'm a chestnut expert. I mean... It's a pretty great sentence that just happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, this is not where I thought this show would go at all. I haven't even said the topic yet. And that's, nope. that's, uh, that's a little different. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, hey so what, what, what on earth are we talking about today? Anna? We're talking about Dickens is a Christmas Carol. Dickens is a Christmas Carol, which you say after the chestnut joke. Look, look, Charles Dickens's Christmas Carol has been kind of pegged as like a childhood story, probably because like Disney like did Once Upon a Mickey and it, you know, whatever. But actually, if you read the book, it is not a children's story. It is. <laughs> Wait, what? Okay. I don't know about this Once Upon a Mickey thing, but that's maybe just because I don't know it's, things. It's Mickey Mouse's yeah. Mouse Christmas Carol is in it. It's, um, you know, it's, they, they do, uh, I, I, again, I've watched a bunch of these. I watched, uh, I watched the Mickey one last night. Scrooge McDuck is Scrooge. Okay. Yeah. And Mickey, Mickey Mouse. Is Bob Cratchit. Yeah. Donald is Fred. Yeah. Um, Rob Scrooge's nephew. Cause, mm-hmm. you know. Great. And it's Christmas Carol. Uh, Goofy is Marley. Um, I think. Also, like, very disturbing in Ghosts of Christmas Future sequence that scarred me as a child, but that's that's not really <laughs> what we're getting into exactly. Um, a little bit, maybe. I mean, actually, actually, probably true. So what are we talking about with The Christmas Carol? A Christmas Carol was published in 1843, uh, and since then, it has remained super, super popular and has been retold countless times, including some very strange um, inspiration adaptation-esque things like The Ghosts of Girlfriend's Past. Don't ask about that. Let's let's kind of forget it exists, even though I brought up. Um, so, like, why? Obviously, I'm Googling <laughs> that now. You realize that, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I've um, never fucking heard of this, and I'm now fascinated. But so what, what really we're saying is that this is the Hannah Rogers, the Hannah uh, Rogers show. 
I thought I schemed and schemed and schemed. Also, listeners, I just want you to know that there was a dance that went with that. Uh, I did do the dance. No, I will not make a video of it. Oh my God, McConaughey's in this with Jennifer Garner? Yes. Uh, Really? Yes, aggressive centrist, Matthew McConaughey, yes. Uh, No. Um, Anyway. While we're we're talking about, I'm sorry to interrupt your, your... your analysis of this, but I, you know, we're talking about this being kids shows and whatever. Um, I have to point out this because I'm old, although this, this kind of predates me, but my first exposure to the Christmas Carol was Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. Mine too. I'm, that's, I'm old that's, too. The, that's the first, yeah, that's the first one I ever saw. And I'm, I'm willing to bet like 50% of our, our, our commune here has no idea who Mr. Magoo is. Uh, have you guys ever seen it before? I, like, like, I've heard the name. I don't. I don't. I don't know. Sure. I don't know things because it probably yeah. hasn't been on TV since 1968. I think no, it was on Boomerang. I think it might have been on Boomerang. And it's streaming on Peacock now. I know because I watched it again two days ago. <laughs> because it is it is my favorite version of a Christmas Carol. And when I you know when I like I read the book again for because Hannah asked uh, asked me to. And when sure. as I did when I read it in um, I read it originally I think in eighth grade. Um, oh, and me then too. I read, um, yeah, I, I was in the play in eighth grade, uh, the play of a Christmas Carol. So I read it in, in eighth grade, and then I read it again at some point in college, and then I then this weekend. And when I read it, I I see Mr. Magoo as um as who that's that's how I envision Scrooge in my mind because yeah, and, of and the 1962 version of of Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. For for context, the voice of Mr. Magoo is Jim Backus, who is the, the millionaire, from Mr. Gilligan's Howe from Island. Gilligan's Island. Yes. So, but, but so so that was my first exposure to to a Christmas Carol. Um, might not have been the best one. So tell it's us remarkably what, faithful. It uh, is way, yeah, remarkably faithful to, so, to so the original. Anyway, I'm sorry for interrupting. I just had no. to throw that out early because it's so ridiculous. But please, Hannah, I mean, continue. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the point, right? Like, it's been told again and again and again um, across, like, the 19th, 20th, and now 21st century. Like, we, we just, like, can't let it go. So, like, why? Why do we still think A Christmas Carol is relevant? Because we clearly aren't just watching it because Hollywood has run out of yeah. ideas. <laughs> uh, because I mean, because they have it's nice, because it's nice. I don't know. Like it's it's oh. a it's a cute holiday movie. Do well, we need? I mean, we watch well, those, we watch shitty Hallmark movies, which are hey, I would hey, argue hey. worse. Hey, hey, there is no judgment <laughs> here about watching Hallmark movies. It's not judgment. <laughs> I'm just saying that they're not good films. Uh, like, yeah. I don't. Who's Christmas with the square? Uh, which is actually <laughs> Dude, I'm, currently, I'm currently producing an action movie about tangerines, like. I, you know, I'm not here to judge what isn't isn't a good movie. I'm just saying, good good movies like good movies are entertaining, bad movies are entertaining. They're just different, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I thought we would open this show by me telling you a summary of the original Christmas Carol, so we can establish a baseline because there have been some like key changes over the years and adaptations. And then I thought we could talk about some of the straight adaptations, like the 2009 version, which might actually be the most faithful to the novel, actually, maybe. And a Muppet's Christmas Carol, okay. because I can't the Muppets handle... Are the, mo- yes. the Muppet one yes. is the most important. It is the most it's, important, it's yes. It's honestly the one I, I've seen other ones. It's the one that, like, my brain... That when, I, when I hear Christmas Carol, I think of the Muppet. It is, it is the delightful one. And then we can move on to, yeah, life. I um, accept once again. this plan. Which is the most structured episode we've had in years, probably. Ever. We're making history. All right. So we open A Christmas Carol with Dickens emphasizing over and over again that Marley is dead to begin with. 
And Dickens, in his typical way, goes on and on and on about it. And then we move from hearing about how Marley is his desidor now, which is a phrase that Dickens doesn't really understand, but is not going to quibble with, to moving on to introducing uh, Marley's former partner, Ebenezer Scrooge, which features these amazing lines. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Dickens just, you know, he knows how to write. Anyway. So Dickens has us meet Scrooge on Christmas Eve where he is working and torturing his clerk with a meager fire because he hoards the coal because he's a cheap miser on top of being just a straight up dick. Anyway, so Scrooge is visited by his nephew, Fred, who wishes him a Merry Christmas. Dickens used the exact phrase. Dick. Yes. dick. I assume that yeah. that was yes. the exact Cool. Just making, just yeah. clarifying that that was yeah. citation, not. Yes, uh, that's a, that's a straight up Dickinson, Dickinson. Uh, I can't say that word. Hey. <laughs> trust, trust me, you will know when I'm quoting Dickens. Hi, we're um, helpful. Yes, well that's fine. Uh, so Scrooge is visited by his <laughs> nephew Fred, who wishes him a Merry Christmas, and then two men seeking to collect aid for the poor, and then carolers. And Scrooge does not take these visits well. He is the worst. And I know I said this would be a quick summary. I want to pause here on two things because they're really important to the themes of A Christmas Carol. Firstly, Scrooge's nephew, Fred, gives this summary of Christmas, which I'm going to quote again. It is a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And then Scrooge most famously um, has an exchange with the philanthropist where he asks if there are prisons, workhouses, and if the poor laws are still at work. And by the way, I know that not everyone knows about the 19th century like I do, but the workhouses were real bad and prison conditions were poor and the poor laws were not really meant to help the poor, but villainize them. So can you give us a quick recap of what a workhouse is okay. maybe before we move on? Yeah. So Dickens throughout his work gives really bleak portraits of a workhouse. Um, you could like if you could not support yourself, you would go to the workhouse and you could get accommodation and employment. But they were really like cruel places. Sometimes they went as far as to like separate like the men and women of families. They so they're like debtors yeah. prisons, right? Well, no, debtors' prisons were different. Oh, a workhouse, okay. a, like you, you get you get put in a debtors' prison uh, if you couldn't pay your debts, and like sometimes your family would move in there with you. Um, and actually, Dickens's father was put into the Marshalsea debt prison when Dickens was a child, and Dickens had to go work in a factory and leave school, which Dickens was bitter about for like the rest of his life because of the cruelty of the mm, world. Fair, which which yeah, so like you can see like his motivation for writing, writing these things. So Scrooge is like. There are all these institutions to help the poor. Uh, I don't care about their cruelty. And he also calls the poor idle and says that if they don't aren't willing to go to the workhouses, they should, quote, die and decrease the surplus population. Um, uh, I, I was going to try to sneak in and do that line just because I know uh, it's my favorite line in the, in, um, <laughs> in the entire book. Well, <laughs> well there's sure, there so another no eugenics bad. Yeah. Well, and you know, like, um, again, pausing here, Dickens had a beef with a guy named Thomas Malthus, who wrote a treatise on population in the late 18th century, which was like scarcity is caused by overpopulation. And well, you shouldn't overbreed poor people and you shouldn't like take all the like bounty for all of you. And so like 
people were very concerned about the poor and in some ways like Malthus um, and like population control. Actually, and not in some ways, but definitely Malthus and population control are still thought about today, even though like scarcity isn't really like a thing, but then we can get into that later. Anyway, so. As a footnote, at PCAC a year and a half ago, the first panel I sat in on was about Firefly. And the guy presenting the paper told me that uh, that Firefly began with an oblique Malthusian occurrence. So, so there's that. So there we go. Yeah. So what we've established here is that yes. Firefly, so Firefly and a Christmas Carol happen in the same cinematic universe. <laughs> and actually, if you don't, and if you're still confused about what I mean about Malthus and his ideas, think about Thanos. And Thanos and Malthus are basically <laughs> the same person. Um, so, yeah. So, um, we've gone full circle, guys. Oh my God. I okay. just want to see an Avengers <laughs> Christmas Carol now starring Thanos. Okay. So, <laughs> yes. So, to back, back to a Christmas Carol, um, after Scrooge <laughs> establishes to the readers, he's the absolute worst. Um, and that's a technical term. He proves this he's further. He's the absolute worst TM. Yeah, he brewed this further by whining about giving his clerk the day off and heads home where he's surprised to see Marley's face on a door knocker. And he's like, what? Because, you know, Marley is dead. Um, so he sits in the dark in his home because he's a miser and because it ups the creep me out atmosphere so Dickens can introduce the ghost of Jarl- J- Jacob Marley because since Jacob Marley is dead, all the events that are going to occur are wondrous. So Scrooge is very put upon by the visit of a ghost. Uh, particularly after Marley reveals that he wears change he forged in life by being an absolute dick and that Scrooge's change will be even heavier because he's lived longer. And then Marley fails to provide even less comfort by proclaiming that Scrooge will be haunted by three spirits who will guide Scrooge on a potential path of redemption so he can escape Marley's fate. And then in a moment that does not make adaptations usually because it's like the stuff of nightmares, Marley then joins a caffeine of wailing ghosts um, whose description will definitely haunt your dreams. And I think Dickens actually portrays a really interesting like version of hell slash purgatory because the ghosts are like wailing because they cannot help the suffering poor of the city. I just got to point out here that in the Mr. Magoo version of A Christmas Carol, <laughs> that scene is in it because children were tougher in 1962 <laughs> than the soft children <laughs> who are around today. <laughs> it's also in the 2009 version, but we'll get into that. Um, Scrooge then sleeps and is awakened and meets the childlike ghost of Christmas Past, who's also kind of old looking, but it's, you know, it's Dickens being weird. Uh, the ghost of Christmas Past then takes Scrooge on a journey through his own past, beginning with Scrooge's boyhood. This includes his days at school, where he remembers in particular how he loved his late sister, and also how Scrooge had father issues because his father was cruel and sent Scrooge away. Gee, whose life does that mm. resemble? Anyway, we move to Scrooge's apprenticeship under Fezziwig. And I would just like to pause here and say that Sam Adams' beer mm. used to make a delightful old Fezziwig ale for Christmas yes. time. And this year they replaced it with an IPA in the winter packs. And to that I say, bah humbug, because why would you do that? Um, so Fezziwig is just a great and fun word to say. Yes. Like, also, why, it was, why, yeah. why would you do that? Why would you and not actually, want that yeah. in your life? I know. So Sam Adams, we protest you. Um, make better decisions. They, they are in fact unless, here. Unless they, want to, unless they want to, you know, sponsor us, in which case we love Sam Adams. Just saying. Uh, 
make old Fezziwig again and we'll see. Anyway, um, Scrooge <laughs> remembers a Christmas party um, where he realizes he, like, remembers that Christmas party and he realizes that he has been a terrible boss. The spirit finally shows Scrooge the memory of his fiance Belle ditching him because Scrooge's principles are against marrying her because now he's in love with money. Also, I want to pause here and say that's a pretty ballsy move for a woman in the 19th century to break off an engagement because of, like, how people saw women whose engagements were broken. Um, AKA not good. Uh, the spirit Scrooge and gives Scrooge and us closure then as we see Belle later happily married to another man, which causes Scrooge to regret about his own life and like his familial legacy because like he doesn't have children. And Scrooge like can't handle it because he realizes that he's all alone while Belle's like happy. So he begs to be taken away. And I love how this like is a thing that Dickens actually gave us because it's like Belle's life didn't center around the main character. And uh, their adaptations seem to forget this. Anyway, this leads us to the second experience. She was a badass independent lady. Yeah. Of the 19th century. I mean, and also like Dickens has like a complicated relationship with women that usually veers on the side of creepy. So this is actually interesting. Yeah. I mean, he tried to lock his wife in an asylum so he could be with another woman. Um, so uh, even as I talk about this story and like the positives of Dickens, let's not forget that Dickens also was a dick. Anyway, this leads us to the second spirit's appearance in the form of a jelly giant. The ghost of Christmas present takes uh, Scrooge out on the town. Dickens describes London in a way only Dickens can. We get a mix of gloom and joy, suffering and celebration. And then we find ourselves in the home of Bob Cratchit, Scrooge's clerk, where his wife is cooking goose. Goose, of course, is the superior Christmas bird. <laughs> anyway, the Cratchit children are very excited to see their father and brother, Tiny Tim, return home. Tiny Tim is described by his father, quote, as good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful sitting by himself so much and thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind man see. And Razzleberry dressing. Okay. Despite the shabbiness of the meal in the eyes of the reader and Scrooge, the Crouches treat their feast as if it is like the London mares. Uh, Scrooge asks the spirit if Tiny Tim would live. The ghost says that if nothing changes, the child will die. Scrooge cries no, but the spirit repeats the old man's word back at him. Uh, Mav, would you like to do the honor? Oh, um, see, now I'm not ready for it. If they're going to die, they they better do it quickly and increase the surplus population. Yeah. <laughs> so you can you can add that to be better. Uh, oh, it's so, fine. No, no. <laughs> uh, Scrooge is deeply ashamed, particularly once Bob Cratchit expresses his thankfulness for Scrooge, even though Scrooge is a miser of a boss and an absolute dick. The spirit continues their journey and shows the poor celebrating Christmas before giving Scrooge another emotional blow by taking him to the home of his nephew, Fred. After Dickens gets done creepily describing Fred's wife, he moves on to Fred expressing his pity for his uncle. Scrooge actually ends up enjoying watching his nephew's celebrations before the spirit rips him away to see other parties. And again, just a reminder, Fred is the son of Scrooge's late sister who died and Scrooge loved her very much. And maybe that's why he's cold, but we really don't know why he went from being like a kind of nice guy to an absolute dick. Anyway, he goes to Christmas present, then departs, but not before once again scarring the readers. This time he reveals a sinister looking boy and girl from under his robes who are named Ignorance and Want. When Scrooge asks if there are no remedies for these problems, the spirit once again throws the words about prisons and workhouses back at Scrooge before disappearing. 
disappearing. So, like, this is just a book of, like, a guy having to eat his own words. We then reach the creepiest part of the story, where the hooded Grim Reaper ghost of Christmas yet to come appears. This ghost is silent, so Scrooge does all the talking, and Scrooge is taken to an, on another tour of the city, where businessmen are gossiping about a miserly dead man. Then he sees the stolen bed curtains and other items of the dead man being sold. Scrooge at first thinks this is a warning that he might end up as that same dead man. The only people who show emotion at the man's death is a family that was in danger of losing everything because they were in debt, but now have been spared his cruelty. To pile on the misery, Dickens then reveals that Tiny Tim has died and the Cratchits are suffering greatly. Scrooge is then taken to a grave and realizes the man whose death received only apathy and celebration was himself. He begs to have a chance to change, to honor Christmas and keep it all the year. And then he finds himself in his bed. And yeah, he's like super excited to see his bed curtains are there. Anyway, he then decides to change, asks the boy for confirmation of the day. And upon hearing his Christmas, does good deeds. He purchases the prized turkey for the Cratchits, which again, like I get the good message. But and like turkey was like rarer than goose. But you know, it's, it's, it's sad for Goose. Um, so he finds the philanthropist from the beginning and offers recompense. Then he fa- finally appears at his nephew's where he spends Christmas Day and is joyful. The day after Christmas, Scrooge returns to the office and then pranks Bob Cratchit by making him think he's getting fired, which honestly is still kind of a dick move, but baby steps, I guess, to change. But instead gives Bob a raise and offers to help his family. Also, he stops hoarding the coal for the fire. The narrator then reveals that Tiny Tim did not die and that Scrooge was good as a man as he could be. And to end it with Dickens, quote, he had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that truly be said of us and all of us. And as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. And Razzleberry dressing. <laughs> <laughs> So you really have to watch the Magoo version. <laughs> so um, actually, as I reread it for this episode, I was struck by how current it was still, even though I'm constantly insisting that the 19th century tells us a lot about our current present. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's, like, it's a lot of like universal themes about shitty bosses and capitalism. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, the cold the part is maybe a little, you know, didn't age quite as well, but. Well, so here's here's one of my my weird questions about it. So I agree with Hannah. I think that particularly if you watch the full version or the Magoo version, the Muppets one's a little sanctified as is the Disney one. Um, but if you read the original, it is a much darker book than one thinks of when they think of the lovely, pretty Christmas story of of, of a Christmas carol. Um, most versions leave out the children that are at the bottom of Christmas presents feet. The um, uh, what ignorance they and want? And, yeah. what, what are they? Ignorance and want. Yeah, um, those are left out of a lot so of versions. Like having children coming out from under a robe is a little yes. alarming, and yeah, and it's creepy. It, and, and and both reading it and seeing it both count, turn out it feels creepy. So, so I get that, right? But on the other hand, I, I think one way to say it still it still resonates with us is because it is a timeless story that is still issues that we deal with. But I think the version that most resonates with people or the versions that most resonate with people, the ones that get shown the most are sanctified versions where you kind of take out all of the scary bits and all the political yeah. bits. And, and so I think it's weird that like there's a it's a timeless story that we've made we, we've done our best to make it not mean anything other than 
Christmas is about love, you know, which is what we, what we do now. Everyone, right? so yeah. I, I will say, I will say that like the 2009 Disney's A Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey as the ghosts and also Scrooge in a very strange accent is extremely close to the novel. They have mm-hmm. both the, the Marley wailing ghost scene and ignorance and want. And in fact, they play up the dark element so much that I think actually the reason why um, it got unfairly reviewed um, pretty low on Rotten Tomatoes is because they were like, how dare they expose children to this? Uh, where, why? Where is the happy tale? And this is this is the tale. The dark, the dark gothic um, is a part of A Christmas Carol and a lot of like 19th century literature that we do try and sanctify. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, like, it's dark by our standards. Would it have been read as like a dark kind of horror Christmas thing in the 19th century? Or was like the 19th century, like the tolerance for creepy shit was higher? I mean, like, have you read uh, that? Sorry, that that sounded a little like, uh, I mean, like the, yeah, like that. Look, everything from the 19th century is creepy. Um, yeah. Uh, like, so, like, like, like Goblin, Goblin Market is like, like a children's show now. Like, out of the ordinary. No, like that's why that's why I mean, like Jane, like Jane Eyre, the Gothic novel from the 18th century were all, you know, super popular. Um, but, like if you read like if you see like magic lantern shows, um, they have like really um, disturbing morality tells like I was um, shown one by my um, undergrad instructor called uh, Miss uh, Kitty. Uh, I'm, I'm editing here. Miss Kitty's Road to Ruin. And it's about a kitty who um, does not guard herself and uh, ends up going a bad way. Uh, <laughs> also, like, lots of, like... Like, are we talking like, about a cat? Eating? No. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, metaphorically. I mean, we, we were talking about a cat. It is a cat, but also, like, it's a metaphor for other things. It's... Yes. Right. Um, okay. Yeah, like, it's... Damn. Like the, I the didn't actually getting weird. I mean, like, Dickens is... One of Dickens's like, previous novels was Barnaby Rudge, which um, was about the Gordon riots and also featured a talking crow, um, which um, Edgar Allan Poe hated, but also inspired him to write The Raven. So, you know, like the 19th century was so weird. People had... Like, fuck that. Better. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, like the 19th century is weird. Like, I mean, like at, at points in the 19th century, you know, people had like funeral picnics for fun. Like what? I don't know what to tell you. Like the Victorians were weird people. Um, but I, I think that like... Okay, the, whoa, whoa, yeah. Mm-hmm. Please explain what the hell a funeral picnic is. Uh, well, well, okay. Sorry, not <laughs> great. They had graveyard picnics. Sorry. Uh, oh, okay. So like they would they would just like hang out in cemeteries and yeah, nice of like you know hanging out with the dead people so they get I guess they're they're remembered or something you know and and people like I mean like you know. Um, well, I don't know what to say. Yeah, this, this 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 still takes place. You need to make more goth friends. <laughs> oh yeah, like yeah, like 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 it was just like a and it wasn't like a goth thing. It was just like people people went to seminaries and had picnics and um you know like people were in mourning for like an extremely long time in the Victorian period because it was a thing to do. Um, but you know like the the like I think that the things that like is the stuff of nightmares that gets cut out um yeah. also like features a lot of the more political stuff like when Marley joins the cacophony of ghosts um wailing in London. Dickens makes a comment comment about like, you know, oh, and look, there are the governments there, like who, you know, are, are you know, chained up to trying to be trying to help, but they can't. Um, and 
Yeah, so Dickens, like, you know, also, and not so much in A Christmas Carol because it is short, but Dickens really loved to skewer the government mm-hmm. bureaucracy. Uh, and he's known for that a little bit, yeah. too. Like, so, I mean, as far as the the mood of it, the full title of the book is, it's. I mean, we say A Christmas Carol, but it, it's A Christmas Carol in prose being a ghost story of Christmas. And it's, you know, like all of his titles are super long, but like, it's just so matter of fact. Yeah. Being a ghost story of Christmas. It is, it is, if you read it much more a ghost story than a Christmas story. It's, you know, there's Christmas tones, but it's a, that's a backdrop. It's really the spooky, the spookiness of this man being haunted. And like, I, I I actually find it interesting that he's haunted by his choices and he isn't like slowly over time, he realizes, and by slowly, I mean, over the course of the three visits, he doesn't just like freak out at the very, very end. Um, Once he sees his future, he slowly over time realizes that he has not made the best choices and he's been an absolute dick. Um, But Mm -hmm. as I quipped in my dissertation, the fantasy of A Christmas Carol isn't that he's being visited by three ghosts. It's that a rich man actually bothers to change. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, now, now everybody's depressed. <laughs> this must be an up- uplifting episode. Well, so let's look at it the other way then. If we've got the original, how does it become this? I mean, it's not a happy story. Even, even the purest, if you look at the Disney version, right? What happens is still kind of dark, right? Like Mickey is, um, is being tortured by, um, by Uncle Scrooge. So and- basically, scare the bejesus out of a guy. So that his heart changes, sort of like the Grinch, but with more gentle psychological torture. Well, exactly like the Grinch, right? Like, so, it, I mean, it becomes a morality tale, a lot of morality tales and fairy tales. I guess it's like the, the Grinch is more like, there's less, like, it's, it's more like the Grinch, like his conscience suddenly appears rather than he's being psychologically browbeaten into submission. Right. I guess it's like the... Sure. But the lesson is still, I mean, what we're trying to do with these stories, I mean, the, the, the entire idea of Santa Claus, right, is we are trying to teach morality to children with bribing them. Right. And that's what the Grinch is. The Grinch is be a good person for Christmas or Cindy Lou Who will cry. And and most versions of the of a, of a Christmas Carol, which are produced today are, you know, if you're bad, ghosts come and scare you. So be good. Because that's the Christmas spirit. It, you know, I, we're playing into the morality aspect of it. We're playing mm-hmm. that up much more than the critique aspect, which, uh, the, you know, the, the sociocultural critique aspect, which I think is what Hannah is more interested in. Well, the, 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 the only motivation to be good is so you don't go to hell. Yeah. <laughs> which actually, I mean, but hell is interesting here to me because like, you know, um, hell can be defined as, you know, like burning torture, like the bad place they talk about, mm-hmm. like all the like interesting ways the demons have come up to like torture people. And all I can think of, despite knowing many of them, because I watch the show too much, is like, penis flattening, but, you know, like that's like legit, just like <laughs> physical torture. Um, yeah. or then like, or then like, you know, um, some like versions of Christianity have, um, you know, said like, you know, hell is just like separation from God. But this hell is being on earth and watching your fellow man suffer and not being able to step in and help. So you're Mm -hmm. tortured with the suffering of other people every single day, which part like, you know, watching Tiny Tim suffer and being forced to look at what the Cratchit family goes through and being forced to like see the conditions that like the minor family goes through when the ghost of president takes 
Scrooge on a tour through London. That's mm-hmm. part of why Scrooge changes because he's forced to look in the face and he actually can do something while he's still alive. And, and it's the idea of you know, teaching compassion, empathy and mm-hmm. compassion, yeah. which are our central Christian tenets at its core. Mm-hmm. There is, um, it is, and I just said that it is the, the hell of a Christmas Carol is being forced to wander the or- wander the earth invisibly wailing, carrying a chain with your ledger strapped to you. Um, it's not clear. At least I didn't pick up on it. And Hannah, you've clearly read this more times than any of us. It's not clear why Marley is granted a reprieve for this one night because the entire point of his torture is he's not supposed to be able to do anything about it. But just this one night, he gets a chance to talk to Scrooge and be like, cautionary tale. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. And, and then Marley actually yeah. even says like, I've been seen in visible alongside you for many days and Scrooge is like that's creepy as hell and like yeah right. it is um so yeah I mean like it, I think that like that that he's granted a, a reprieve to Scrooge can be granted a reprieve why I don't know yeah um, they, they, there like, can't be a plot otherwise yeah what's what's interesting to me like I mean clearly like Dickens is arguing like you know a man can change you can you can find like redemption you might not be able to fix everything like Scrooge can't go back to Belle and say, I'm really sorry, let's get married. She's moved on. Like, mm-hmm. he can't really apologize for that. But he can do better the day the day of Christmas Day, better than the day before, and then continue so on and so on, so that he eventually, like, changes his personality so much that some people laugh at him thinking about how he was, but he's so good that people are like, oh, like, can't say anything bad about him. Um, he's so good that Tiny Tim miraculously lives. Well, actually, as someone po- <laughs> as someone pointed out on Twitter, I saw a quip, Tiny Tim living after Scrooge helps proves that children could survive if they were just given enough medical, healthcare. like, m- money for yeah. medical, yeah, and healthcare. So, like, <laughs> so, like, I mean, like, but, you know, that's, like, about individual contributions. So, right. like, Dickens is talking about, like, individual change, but at the same time, Dickens, what Dickens is, like, really known for and why he's interesting to so many people still is his ruthless critiques of the structural problems of the 19th century, like the workhouse system, like the poor law, like the bureaucracy that constantly seems to churn, but like nothing ever gets done, like the chancery courts and bleak house, like, you know, so like, yeah, so like, he's also like, you know, the fact that like he can change a few lives, that's great. But like, like London still moves in the same way that it did. And there's, there's, you know, there's got to be some other change, which I think is like also speaks to our problems today too. Like we, we can each individually do things, right? Like we, we on the show have been advocated for the past couple weeks, month for you to donate to your local food bank, mm-hmm. which you should do. Uh, link in the show notes. But mm-hmm. I mean that like, that's again, just like us doing individual work, which is helpful. But what really should happen is there should be a structural change to ensure that everyone who needs food mm-hmm. should have food. So are you Don- arguing? Oh, God. No, I was going to say donating food bank while, while valuable is a band aid until the, the system yes. is fixed. Exactly. Right. So is the argument right. then that, that because the system never fixes, um, you know, we, we all do our little part, but the world is bleak and doomed regardless. I don't think Dickens is arguing that necessarily, um, but okay. 
But I think that 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 is something like that kind of comes out um, of like thinking about A Christmas Carol and like how we might could apply its lessons because, you know, certainly people have been inspired to do good by this novel or an adaptation or are just inspired by um, the spirit of Christmas Mm -hmm. in the in the way that, you know, Fred talks about like we're during this time of year. We don't treat people we usually would treat like crap, like crap. Like people are more likely to, you know, give to charity or smile or even, you know, like do do like buy buy like kids whose families they like would call the idle poor like toys for Christmas through like a Salvation Army or Christmas tree right. program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the season we do all, like a lot of people do all of their charitable giving mm-hmm. all at once, mm-hmm. and our attitudes change for like a month. A month. A month. Um, well, it's um, the it's the it's the naughty or nice list, right? Like you, like sure. the entire point of again, the point of Santa is you know to bribe children into behaving. But like I, I was a kid once, and I and you know at some point I believed in Santa, and you know Santa's not really wa- watching all twelve months, right? Can I just get it all in in the in the two weeks before Christmas? Because that's when you really start, you know, he, he's probably really paying attention now. So is uh-huh. that the is this? Um, I mean, Scrooge is old. Is this the deathbed confession? Right? Is this the the plenary ind- indulgence? Hey, I'm getting to the end here. I gotta like shape up before I end up in Scrooge's case. It's not so much a hell. What's a like you said? He's a haunting ghost, or you know, in a in a grave that no one remembers or cares about. Like that's um, uh-huh. like is that the? I mean, is it a critique of the way that we change? Isn't so much a permanent thing. It's a okay, got to be good because it's getting towards crunch time and people are watching. You know, I mean, there's certainly some tension there. I think, um, but I, I, you know, I think it's interesting that you kind of bring up this tension because I, while I I set out a um, uh, organizational flow to this episode, I'm going to cheat and skip ahead um, to some of the loose. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I, I I ruined it like halfway through. Um, like some of the looser adaptations of A Christmas Carol are things that heavily borrow tropes, which are um, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. And also like SNL for the past couple of years has been obsessed with doing like A Christmas Carol or It's a Wonderful Life, like cold opens parodies with Donald Trump. Right. Um, and yeah. for, for those of you um, who have not seen It's a Wonderful Life, um, the main character played by Jimmy Stewart is more of a Bob Cratchit figure than a Scrooge figure. He does the best he can to help the people in his town. And mm-hmm. he actually goes head to head against Mr. Potter, the Scrooge figure, uh, to try to ensure that the people of his town have good homes and that they actually try to fix structural problems. And Mr. Potter, in It's a Wonderful Life, notably, never changes. He's always a dick. He gets away <laughs> with stealing the money. People like wrote to Frank Capra angry about this actually yeah he's still still the fucking town yeah (laughs) so like but but like you know like the the town rallies around um jimmy stewart's character and he is saved so and and also like the angel clarence like teaches him that he has a wonderful life so it's an extremely different bent where like it's from the perspective of the worker and it doesn't see the capitalist overlord as redeemable and then the SNL parodies, um, which like I have a lot of issues with just because I don't find SNL funny for a lot of reasons, but that's not this show. Do something like they do the interesting thing where they like put Don Trump as the Scrooge or like Mr. Potter slash uh, Jimmy Stewart figure. 
And then, like, you know, he Trump goes on these journeys, but nothing, like, changes. And so, like, SNL is basically saying, well, we have a political figure in our midst who shows the limitations of this story. Like, he's not going to change. Why are we expecting mm-hmm. him to change? Why are we expecting mm-hmm. him to get anything out of this, even if he did have, you know, three ghosts appear to teach him all these lessons? Like, do we really think that this would happen? Um, so I, I think that I don't know. Like, I mean, like. Can people change? Does it matter? Like, is that is that really like? Are are they just critiquing structural problems? There are they critiquing like the you know central ideal of a Christmas Carol? I'll leave it up to you to decide. While you were talking, I was thinking of like I mean the other aspect of this is like if you set aside like the horror aspect and even the Christmas aspect, like a Christmas Carol is okay. I guess this is a question, Hannah. Like I imagine because this is basically like a working class fantasy, right? Is basically that. The greedy boss man gets shafted by a bunch of ghosts and that makes him a less horrible person to his workers. So, like, is is it really a morality tale if, like, it's, if the audience, like, if the audience is predominantly working class and it's, like, cathartic on the level of, hey, the, you know, Scrooge looks like a guy who, you know, mistreats me on the regular. Or were people, like, of Scrooge's class actually reading this and talking about it and, like, I, yeah, I guess the question is: like, yeah. Is it is is it is it the, is it like the 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 re- working class revenge fantasy aspect? Is that part of it, or is it the morality tale for the already wealthy, or is it both? Just because I, I, I don't think, know the nineteenth century reading population the way that you do. I think I think it's I think it's uh, pretty much everybody. Like Dickens, you know, did Dickens had like what sympathy was with the working class because to a large degree mm-hmm. because of how he grew up and what he saw um, in his other work experiences. But but yes, but he also like, he also made a lot of money um, on his novels. He traveled to America, um, was treated like, like uh, I Dickens was like JK Rowling. Um, uh, like I, you, you can, you can read that how you'd like to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, transphobia included. Uh, I, I probably would have been Dickens was a dick. Um, he, he had like, he has really good class consciousness sensibilities in a lot of ways, but Dickens, Charles Dickens was not the idealized person that he's portrayed as in a lot of media. Um, there's a recent movie called the man who invented Christmas, which is actually like not true. Dickens did not invent Christmas. Through Christmas, a Christmas Carol. Him, yes. Um, I mean, like, or but you know, like people like say that you know, Christmas Carol invented like the modern Christmas, and that's not strictly true. But um, mm. Dickens, he did popularize the usage of the term "Merry Christmas" specifically, which he didn't invent either. But like, it wasn't yeah. as popular a term so, before him. Yeah. So Dickens, like Dickens, in that movie, is portrayed as like extremely generous, mm. but also like has money problems and like isn't super thoughtful, but overall is a generally good guy. And that's not, he's, he's a complicated person as I've, I've like listed off some of the things he's done um, in this episode already. Um, and he also like, he did like to redeem some of his more Scrooge like characters as well. So like there are some like very like strange class politics and a lot of people who, you know, were of like kind of the middling class sort loved a Christmas Carol when it came out. Um, so it, it wasn't just it wasn't just for like the person on the street to think, oh, if only three ghosts would come and like haunt my boss. Um, well, yeah. Uh, but don't we all so, want that? And, yeah. <sighs> 
it's, in my case, it's not necessarily my boss, but I can think of other uh, wealthy <laughs> business. Yeah, I actually like my boss. I would yeah. love to have yeah. Uh, yeah. content. Uh, yeah, like yeah. So so yeah, it's it's Dickens didn't just write for and I also think that um a lot of Dickens scholars would not quibble with me saying Dickens did not just write for the poor. Mm. Dickens wrote to convince other people that they should do more for the poor when he was of a charitable mind. Mm-hmm. But also the poor should just not exist, or there should be fewer of them by, you know, magical fairy murder. Well, he was not anti, I mean, my understanding, again, this is differing to Hannah, but it's not so much that he thought the poor shouldn't exist, like murder them. He he didn't think they should exist because he thought that the world should be better to take less care of, of them. Less horrendous. Y- yeah, yeah. The, like, yeah, okay. like, he, he, he hated Malthus. Like, if you read okay. things like little... Yeah. We're talking about yeah. Dickens being an asshole and then also, okay. Yeah. Yeah, like if you, so he's a charitable yeah. asshole, just also an asshole. These are he's separate very class things. conscious, yeah. but also very sexist. Is like, like, is yeah, like, cool. yeah, like, just clarifying. Like, I, I purposefully use J.K. Rowling because I, although their, their politics are in different contexts, they're vexed figures, to say the least, because yeah. of some of their personal politics. As we like to say, they are problematic. Um, yes. So, like, and, and also because, you know, Dickens, like, gave readings and was, like, celebrity status. And um, people went wild for his serialized novels. Uh, well, most of them anyway. Martin Chuzzlewit didn't do so well. So I say that's partially because he skewered America. So yeah, he, you know, he, he was like the big thing. He, he's still like super popular to this day, even though not as popular as if you listen to me talk about him, (laughs) Uh, you know? Um, so, so yeah, he, yeah, he, he hated Malthus. He directly like pit himself against, um, Malthus in multiple books. I think I wrote my dissertation. Malthus was one of Dickens's favorite punching bags. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would like to. While we have time, I'm wondering about some of the other adaptations because you started to sort of you know move into that, like with talking about a wonderful life. But I'm thinking, um, for instance, Scrooge with uh, mm-hmm. Bill Murray that is you know, mm-hmm. a modern. You know, there are there have been attempts to just sort of modernize the story, which is interesting in that you know, but for details of just like you know to place it in the 20th century scrooged isn't substantively a different narrative than a christmas carol it you know it, it is like the it, it's adapting it in the same way that Baz Luhrmann adapts romeo and juliet right it, it, mm-hmm. it, it is they retitled it but it, it but it is functionally the same narrative and i wonder if um you know that seems to be a beloved christmas movie that a lot of people really really like as though it were a different story and i was even looking at the wikipedia page as to you know what counts as an adaptation and they count that one not as an adaptation they caught they put it in the like inspired by section with a wonderful life and i'm like it's the same story it's literally mm-hmm. he's playing scrooge it, mm-hmm. so so i wonder i i you know i wonder again this goes to why is why does such a relatively simple i mean innovative at the time perhaps but but a relatively straightforward narrative why does it continue to sing so much it, it is for as spooky as it is it is a fundamental part of christmas right now in a way that other christmas stories aren't yeah yeah and i i think you know we've already touched on some of this stuff i think there's still just like you know anything that lasts there are some universal ideas there that still resonate just the human condition you know we have 
cell phones now. We're not, you know, surviving at work on a single lump of coal to heat our, our room. Mm-hmm. But the underlying themes of it are still things that people are dealing with, you know, with, with poverty and, and having enough for Christmas and uh, you know, bosses who, who don't consider your humanity. Uh, you know, uh, the whole idea of you know, money, capitalism being more important than the, the spirit of giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think there's a a conflict there. I mean, this time of year it's giving, 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 whereas you know the other 364 days of the year are consuming, consuming, consuming. Well, and, and even in this context, like and even Christmas, you know, it it's built on consumerism because you have to have consumers to be able to give things. Right. Um, so I think there's there's an essential you know dynamic and and conflict there that that still speaks to us mm-hmm. in lots of ways. And I think just there, there is, you know, for good or ill, some of that imagery that the has come to define Christmas, you know, carolers are still wearing top hats and frock coats, you know, when they go out because, <laughs> because that's what Dickens says you do, you know, it, it is just, it is so much become a part of the image of Christmas um, mm-hmm. that, that is, it's, it has transcended the original book and the original narrative in that you know, it, it's become part of our, Christmas culture. Or, uh, you know, people knew, people know nothing about the the story, and I can't imagine there are very many people who know nothing about it. But you know, they're they're going to buy the the little singing carolers dressed in Victorian garb because that's what Christmas. Because that's like. what we do. Or what people think well, I mean, Victorian garb looks like. Just to, right, yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it, I mean, this goes back to our episode a couple of weeks ago now on um, just like the way we often absentmindedly like reenact holiday rituals because that's just what we do. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. this is ingrained, ingrained long enough that it's just sort of like, oh yeah, this is a movie that you watch at the Christmas, like around Christmas, or like one of its many adaptions because it's just what it's it's just it's just what you do. Like we don't actually. Mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. I think especially when a movie or like any kind of cultural object kind of like enters the zeitgeist in that way, where it's just like a thing that you do. Like I don't know, it's hard to like. I can't imagine other than you know people with with nineteenth century knowledge that are kind of like already thinking about this period. It's like it's not a, something that would you would automatically as a average person I think be like yes, let me think deeply about the class implications of Dickens because it's just it because I think like we have a tendency not we as in the people who listen to this, the very intelligent brilliant people who listen to this podcast. But we, the larger cultural we, like, have a tendency to just be like, oh, yeah, this is a Christmas movie. I'm going to watch it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Wonderful Life is now locked down, not playing as much. But I guess it's a Wonderful Life is being replaced by a, a Christmas story with Ralphie, you know, yeah. where it's like, we've got to play this, you know, for for 24 straight hours on TNT or whatever it is, right. because right. Yeah. because it's Christmas. And that's what you do, you know, so. I, I'm going to mention another televised adaptation of it. I haven't seen in a long time, but my memory is it was fairly faithful, which was George C. Scott, um, mm-hmm. the television movie. I looked it up. It was 1984, which is actually later than I would have guessed. Like, yeah. I, I seem to remember seeing that in high school, and and that's definitely after high school for me. Um, but my my memory of that is it just being very stylistic and and very dark, mm-hmm. uh, and and pretty true to the original. Um, I haven't watched that one forever. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, there's also the Black Adder Christmas Carol, which uh, mm. it has very little to do with with Dickens. <laughs> mm. Of course, one of the most faithful adaptations is the Muppet Christmas Carol, um, which is it, we, we I mean, it, it kind of is. It is. It is. It is. Part, it's, it is. It is one of the most faithful. Partially because they cast Gonzo as Charles Dickens and they literally <laughs> use the lines of the book to narrate. There, there are some things that have changed. They, as, as per use, um, some of the, uh, more sanitized versions cut out ignorance, want, and the cap of me of ghosts. 
They mm-hmm. cut out Bell. But they do I, still kill adaptation. Christmas present. They do still kill yeah. Christmas present in it, which um, doesn't yeah. happen. And I don't think Mr. Magoo's version kills Christmas present. Yeah. Um, so remember. yeah. So like there, there, there are some things that have changed. They also like cut out like Bell being, which all like adaptations. I feel like almost all. I won't say all because I haven't seen all. Cut out Bell's like happy with her family. In fact, some versions have Scrooge game back together with Bell like 40 years later or whatever it's been. And it's like, um, no, sir, you <laughs> lost your chance. Um, even Dickens thought that was a little too far. Mm-hmm. And Dickens um, was weird. Um, so, no. Part of that's but- like an, part of that's like an American myth of, you know, we we in our current 20 or 20th and now 21st century culture, there is a glamorization of the first love in I a mean, way that, you know, like, persuasion. Oh, yeah. persuasion, you know, Jane Austen, like second yeah. chance at love. I mean, like it was like seven years later and neither of the characters right. were absolute dicks to one another. Um, right, but I mean, there's, but, there's all kinds of movies about people oh, yeah. going to their 30 year high school reunion and hooking up with, you know, with the person they went to prom with. And it's like, that's frankly kind of creepy. You should be a different person now, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, Muppet Christmas Carol is perhaps my favorite version. Um, it's just, I, I think the Muppet humor, because like the Muppets at their best aren't sanitized um, either, really. Right. Yeah. Um, and they're mm-hmm. for adults. Muppet humor works with Dickens humor because, you know, both mm-hmm. are very irreverent, mm-hmm. uh, occasionally stick it to the man. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're owned by Disney now, so. <laughs> uh, and also. Oh, um, the as, man will own all things. Yeah. And also, as, as, uh, as Katya um, knows, because I sent her this, uh, the. There is a um, YouTube video that I agree with um, by Abby Cox that argues that a Muppet Christmas Carol's costume should have been nominated for an Oscar. And I agree because they're really good. Uh, for listeners, Abby Cox is a historical director on YouTube. She used to be a, I think, 18th century historical reenactor. Um, I highly recommend her unboxing videos, which is basically usually like 20 to 30 minutes of her just like losing her goddamn mind over a dress from the 1800s or the 1900s uh, <laughs> that comes to her in the mail. And it is great and cathartic and pure and good. Um, and you learn something. So anyway, that was my disclaimer over. So Hannah, what is it about her take? Is it, is it just like that they're except like what makes them exceptionally good costumes since you are a 19th century expert? And well, I only vaguely know things about clothes in a non-expert way. Well, to be fair, uh, I am not an expert in 19th century fashion. Um, but the 19th century, like in a lot, lot of adaptations, like and and Abby Cox um, points this out in her video, like pretends like there was no color in the world, um, <laughs> uh, and seems to think like just because everybody just knows because, color wasn't invented till like 1955. 1939 uh, yeah. was the Wizard of Oz. Yes. Like we we, we, we limited, it, yeah. <laughs> so to um, I just feel Hannah's eye roll. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like just just a note to like everybody about the 19th century just because like there were some really grim aspects and they also were very into you know like some gothic horror and and the sensation novel doesn't mean that color didn't exist i think that's one of the interesting things about like co- like the power of costuming and film and also people that study fashion is it's like you remember how human people were historically because i think we have a tendency to like not necessarily intentionally dehumanize people that live in different centuries, but we tend to like think of them as somehow like other than human mm-hmm. in the sense that like, in fact, human beings 150, 200 years ago, whatever, 
probably thought more or less the same as you did in terms of like, you know, they care mm-hmm. about their families. They care about, you know, having enough food to eat and like whatever. The challenges might look different. The way that they dress might look different. But like they're kind of the same people. Yeah, they, they, like, they still laughed and danced and played music and, you know. Had good food, had sex, right. went to, you know, sang, whatever, yeah. um, went to entertainment. Yeah, we, we do well, tend to do like the things. But, well, because like our idea, I think especially when you're talking about people who don't study a particular historical period for like whatever reason, mm-hmm. like we our conception of, say, like the 19th century, the 18th century tends to be built through movies mm-hmm. and television and books that are not necessarily historically accurate. So like. What, like Hannah talking about, like when we tend to make movies that there's no color in the 19th century, it's for an aesthetic reason. They're probably trying to create a particular mood. Off the top of my head, I can't think of a lot of super joyous films set in the 19th century, with the exception of maybe right. some Austin stuff. Um, Although some Austin like uh, movies, like do you really see color there? Um, like, right. yeah, you know. like the the newer production of Emma, which is like yeah. the costuming in that is fabulous yes yes that's um, that a very good example but but yeah i, th- I mean it, it is interesting to kind of think about how like costuming not only like affects it, it when it's a historic when it's a historical like period thing even on the muppets like it not only affects like kind of our experience of that film but because it's historical and because we don't spend most of us spend our days like looking into the historical accuracy of of stuff like that like it, it becomes kind of like our conception of that history like i remember mm-hmm. it might actually be abby cox it's either abby cox or bernadette banner um calling out how like a lot of uh i think it was eight late 18th century and then into the 19th century uh period films often you have see actors wearing ugg boots mm. <laughs> um I think because like the, you know, long dresses, they just think people don't notice. And like most people probably don't notice. However, mm-hmm. the, the fashion historians are there judging but, not so silently. But I mean, I, I don't want to lose the point that you were making, which is we, you know, we look to film, especially because that's people's film is easier than books and books you can't see. You know, you just mm-hmm. have to read the description um, unless you're talking, talking comics. But we look to things like film for interpretations forgetting that there's an aesthetic mood being set by the film by the filmmaker for whatever for whatever reason and for time periods that we cannot touch someone from that time period like if you have if you have a grandparent that was born in the 1930s who's still alive you can talk to that person and they can say oh i remember when you know wayne your your father is 100 years old so mm-hmm. you know he can tell you things about oh yeah i remember in 1930 when blank right so yeah. like so those are things that he fundamentally remembers but for other people um like for my students today um they will i'll teach a class i'll teach a book from 1930 i'll teach you know a book from the 20s or 30s you know uh, a great gatsby right which is 100 years ago it might as well have been 200 years ago or 500 years ago mm-hmm. because they're as you know somebody fitzgerald is only as real, a real person in as much as julius caesar is to them right like yeah. it doesn't yeah it really doesn't matter so it is a very simplified i've you know when i when i teach um when i teach my comics class um um i start with i have a I teach a class called sex violence and comics which i start in the 19 teens with some reading with reading some pulp novels and the kids get to it and they're like there's sex in this book 
And I go, yeah. people, had, people had sex in 1910. That is correct. That's, how, that's, that's where this came from. That's how you exist in this yeah. world, my child. And for the record, there were plenty of pornographic novels in the 18th and 19th century, too. Right. And, and, well, even, these weren't even these weren't even pornographic ones. They were just like they're, they're just absolutely scandalized by. Wait a minute. There's people having sex who aren't married, you know, and it's just like, how can that possibly happen? And it's like because people in 1910, in 1850, in 1810, in 1750. Again, like Katya said, they're pretty much like people today, <laughs> you know, like the, like it's not, you know, it's not as simplified as you might think of. Well, they didn't do that back in those Anything days. Anything that's happening now, minus <laughs> the technology, has always happened. Right, right. And that, and that, that's hard to grasp. public. Yeah. Even that depends on the, right. the time period. Well, and culture. Right. And a lot of it's also just like the, I mean, this is part of the weirdness of archives. Like part of the reason we only know about the quote, or not, I wouldn't say only, we predominantly know about the quote unquote PC versions other than the murder and, you know, that kind of stuff. Cause sex apparently is worse than murder. Um, is because it, it's what information survives basically. Yeah, right. So like, information this actually so i was thinking about this actually during the historical example like one of the reasons it's really hard to figure out for example like i don't know what people like 200 years ago did for deodorant or mm. like basic hygiene practices because believe it or not people before the 20th century did in fact practice personal hygiene sure. but, the interest, but the thing is basically it's like it's really hard to know about that stuff because it wasn't considered noteworthy to record and particularly even if it was recorded it wasn't necessarily considered noteworthy to preserve right. so the information we get is is like highly filtered through what people thought was worth preserving so basically what mm -hmm. ended up in archives everything else the more like day-to-day -day stuff like some of it survives but it's predominantly by accident we even see this actually with a lot of um pulp periodicals from the early 20th century mm -hmm. they were considered you know, trash literature. So a lot of them, unless you had some like very dedicated nerds, which is why we have this information still. And there's a lot of these like pulp magazines exist um, in digital copies now, like it's because dedicated nerds made their own sort of individual archives mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. official quote unquote archives weren't, you know, didn't think it was important. They thought it was like, you know, kids literature, which for the most part it was, um, and it wasn't worth preserving. So which that kind of prejudices the historical record towards I think like more quote unquote serious things, which I think also mm -hmm. kind of feeds back into Hannah's point of like why we don't think of the 19th century as having color because apparently right. we don't yeah, know that's that's see color. I was talking to someone last night about the the comics thing, and mm -hmm. you know, like the you know hundreds of comics from the 1940s that we have no idea who wrote and drew them because nobody was credited, right? Because it wasn't yeah. a thing. And I wanted to tie that back to Hannah's point though, with the with the you know Dickens is not the only author who was alive in 1845. Yeah, right? it turns out there was more than one person, and but he's the one that survives through a combination of fame and luck, right? So. I mean, they're, they're so, extremely popular at the time, Victorian right. um, writers who now I might know them. But if I just like threw out their names just randomly, uh, you guys might not recognize them, even though you study literature. It's just because right. it's not your field. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, D like Dickens, definitely like it, it's pretty reasonable to see like why he survived. But, you know, actually, some of the authors like Jane Austen um, that are popular now weren't super popular back then um and mm -hmm. part of the reason why they survived or like became canonized is because like scholars um when you know we did disciplines uh in the way we do it in english departments we're like yeah austin's like 
the peak realist we're going to take mm-hmm. Austin and canonize her. Um, but also to back to the also like if you don't think that the 19th century has color, just Google William Morris and look at his prints and his wallpapers and uh, you will change your mind. Yeah, just paintings of people from mm-hmm. any time period. You know, there's there's color there. Well, you know? so but does that mean and this is again with the Christmas Carol is the Christmas Carol probably to regular people, not to, you know, nerds like I was gonna say like us, but specifically like Hannah um, to regular people. A Christmas Carol is probably his most well-known work. I would imagine yeah. it's the one or, or tells you cities or Oliver twist, but yeah, I mean, it's probably yeah. the one that per- for most people. Yeah. yeah. I think if, if you went just yeah. by like the thing that most people are likely to have is, seen, I think, right. I think, I think, I think it most and adapted. Yeah. Yeah. Most, ad- yeah. most adapted. I think Christmas Carol. It's the one people can give a synopsis of. That, yeah, that's what I was getting at. Because I can't give you a, I can't off the top of my head, being me even, give you a synopsis of Tale of Two Cities because I've read it once 30 years ago. And yeah. like, I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> actually, to, to, uh, uh, tie it to our um, episode. It was the best of times. It was the worst yeah. of times. And Dickens <laughs> and is talking, and Dickens and is talking how about how it's the best of times for the rich and the worst of times for the poor. So right now. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that's as far as I could get with Tell yeah. of Two Cities because I, I don't remember any characters' names. Um, I mean, A Christmas Carol, there, there, there's a fucking Disney duck named after him, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scrooge comes from this story. Like, we know yeah, right. the name Scrooge because of this story. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and being a Scrooge, I mean, the entire idea of being a Scrooge is just a noun in pop culture now. So that's yeah. what I was going to mm-hmm. so I So I wonder if you know, to, you know, the thing we've been circling around, our conception of what life was in the mid 1800s is due in a large part to this story, Dickens in general, and retellings of the story, you know, like, like, it's not just movies, it's movies of literally this, right? Like, that's probably because I I would argue that A Christmas Carol is probably not only is it his Dickens's most popular work with non-lit nerds, right? I'd argue it's probably the most popular story of anything written in that 40 year period by anybody, right? Like, I, like I bet it's more popular than anything Austin wrote still today, right? Like, I mean, no, it's certainly, certainly Pride and Prejudice has a massive resurgence of, you know, popularity in the last 20, 30 years. There, there might be some post stories that are in that category. Yeah, but, it, it, I mean, but in general, well, I, I think you're right. Yeah, that's kind popularity, of what I'm Has the popularity of Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol, though, been consistent since it was published? Because like, we that's... see. I, 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 so, yeah, like a really interesting thing about A Christmas Carol is it has been adapted numerous, numerous, numerous times, including in the 19th century. A lot of Dickens is novels would sometimes be turned into plays or like inspired by plays like A Tale of Cities was inspired by a play he did with Whoopi Collins uh, and, and A Christmas Carol was one of these uh, novels that was eventually turned into a play. Actually, if you count the Victorian era as like going into the early 20th century because um, Queen Victoria died in 1901, um, actually the first film of a um, Christmas Carol was produced in 1901. Um, it's called Scrooge or Marley's Ghost. Mm-hmm. And it's really short. Um, and then since then, you know, there's just been so many um, adaptations. Um, radio, like inspired by books, inspired by movies, all the way up 
to um, important a Christmas on the square. Um, yeah, like it, it has always been remembered. It's not one of these things that we forgot about really um, for like a long length of time and then rediscovered. I, I mean, like, you know. So it's been you know, going like up and down in popularity, but it's like been here. It's been here. It's, it's like in the cultural it's memory. I mean, which is like pretty unusual. Like even Austin, I don't like Austin has had, I assume has had some consistent popularity, but like. I don't know that, like, even Austin or, like, I mean, this is definitely not true of most American works I can think of. Like, it's really, it's, it's quite unusual. I'm not saying unheard of, but it's uncommon to see, like, a specific work from the 19th century just have consistent popularity up to the present. Like, usually there's ebbs yeah. and flows for most you, things. Yeah. I think in Austin's case particularly, you can argue Austin is as popular as she's ever been now. Mm. Yeah, that seems, yeah. that seems accurate based off of what I am vaguely aware of. Of the 19th century. <laughs> but you'd say Dickens, not so. Dickens is, he was popular in his own day. Yeah, yeah, he was po- like so, so popular. Um, and part and of that's presumably because like Austin is a female author, like everyone, like Dickens, even when she was Dickens, popular, everyone's was like, ah, I don't know about you. He was popular for men, wasn't he? He was like popular for a writer, period, right? He, mm-hmm. he was, he, yeah, he was popular, but like also, like you have to keep in mind, like Dickens. Um, like he did have, like he, he had like a different kind of power differential than many writers in the 19th century Mm. because he, um, eventually would, you know, have his own, um, publications. So like Dickens edited like his own public, like he edited household words. Um, and in fact, he like published like his own stuff. Um, like, like, so like if he, you know, needed to like attract readers, he could publish his own stuff. He also like could cultivate um and choose like what readers to popularize um he you know he and wilkie collins were bffs and like um wilkie collins um for those of you who are not 19th century nerds is considered like the um father of the whodunit mystery novel when he wrote the moonstone and wrote a lot of sensation novels and mystery novels and honestly his works and i'm not just saying this because i am a geek for 19th the 19th century his words works are actually like page turners and still really interesting as well um and in some ways i think that um he might be more interesting than dickens when it comes to certain topics but that's not what we're talking about today so like you know like not not every person in the 19th century had their own publication um you know he also like did plays um as i said he was he was like a pretty like by the end pretty powerful guy um mm-hmm. even though some of his novels again weren't super popular like barnaby rudge um, and martin chuswitt he also you know he, he did things that like we still know today like a tale of two cities um christmas carol like even even like things that like are more complex people still say you know bleak house and our mutual friend are some of the greatest novels ever written by anyone Mm. his shadow looms large and i think honestly a large part of that is because he does have his finger on the pulse of class consciousness in a very like specific way well at the same time and you know we've talked about this tension so we don't have to go over again he did you know not he wasn't like a revolutionary he wasn't like a anarchist communist so like it was both comforting to read dickens but also you felt like you should you get something out of it and yeah like he wasn't he was rocking the boat like just enough to be interesting not so much to be threatening um he hated malthus so we have to give him credit there <laughs> so he too agreed eugenics bad <laughs> mostly kind of well, Maybe? you know i mean the 19th century 
he believed that the poor should have dignity and he was very against the mechanisms that grounded them down. I'll say that. Progress. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept. So before we resolve nothing, is um, are there any oh. other important um, versions that we're not considering? Yeah, Wayne, you have to no, tell yeah, your story. I, I have my anecdote. I, I won't go on in detail. I, I posted the blog about it, and, and we'll put that in the show notes. But yeah, my senior year of high school, I, I was in a gorilla production of uh, A Christmas Carol. The, uh, the my at my small college, the the drama department had been shut down, and they didn't have a drama professor, and some of us were upset about that, and we put on a play in the barn essentially, and we we chose a Christmas Carol, and uh, with no backing from the the college and no budget whatsoever, uh, we built a stage and uh, did a performance, and I played uh, the Ghost Christmas Present. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it ended up being really very successful. The next semester, they actually hired a new drama teacher. Um, you know, our, I guess our ultimate goal of proving to them that drama was important on campus worked. Uh, we, we did this little thing and had two sold out shows. Um, and uh, it, it worked really well. And it was a lot of fun. It, but uh, yeah, I, I was wearing a long green robe and a big staff and had live holly sprigs in my hair for a crown. And uh, <laughs> we, we, we did the scene with, with ignorance and want. Uh, I didn't actually have children under my robe. Let me make that clear. That seems um, problematic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we weren't quite sure how to stage that, but we thought it was an important part of the scene. Um, mm-hmm. So I, you know, just the the staging of it, the way we blocked it on stage, just I was I, I was kind of standing back slightly to the the crowd and and spreading my robe like a you know horrible flasher, which probably wasn't any better than <laughs> actually having children under my robe, but. <laughs> But nevertheless, uh, it went really well. Anyway, we'll we'll link to the blog in the show notes if anybody has any interest in reading my adventures as the ghost of Christmas present. So what you're saying is that you Charles Dickens is a Christmas Carol was the uh, story that saved Christmas and the drama department. It, it was, yeah. It, it, I was going to say, ended, that seems very thematically appropriate. Yeah, I, I ended <laughs> the blog saying it was a little Christmas miracle. Because, yeah, the, the old playhouse on campus was... I don't know that it was actually condemned, but it hadn't been used. It was locked up. There was no heat or, or electricity in the building. Uh, it has since long since been torn down. We were given a key. I mean, the, when I say we had no support, you know, we didn't have a faculty advisor. We didn't have any money, but the, the uh-huh. administration were like, yeah, here's the key to the whole playhouse. Don't die. You can use anything you find in there, but you can't. So they weren't to helping, but they were just getting out of the way. Yeah, yeah. They they allowed <laughs> us to do it and, and gave us a key to a, a you know terrible falling apart building that could have killed us. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the 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 end result of the story is it worked. It 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 reignited some interest on campus, uh, convinced some of the people in the administration, apparently the right people in the administration, that hey, you know, art and drama is important. Let's uh, let's hire somebody. So yeah, I was yeah. I, I did a Christmas Carol as a play. Like I said, I think I mentioned earlier briefly. I think in eighth grade, um, which was it was like the school play, and I I played. I mean, I was like, um, I, I, I believe in the um, in the play, I'm just identified as like butcher, but I am or it, it, I am the guy complaining about oh, I would never go to Scrooge's funeral. I mean, unless they paid me, you know, like that, that part of the book when after he dies. Yeah. So it's it's a, it's a relatively small part, but right. I'm on stage several times just whenever whenever people are complaining yeah. or whatever whenever Scrooge is like complaining at townspeople. So and, I did. 
And we didn't find an actual play of this. You know, like we didn't have money to, you know, do what you do and you know, pay money for whatever. It's mm-hmm. public. I mean, we we got the book out of the college library and essentially wrote our own adaptation as a script mm-hmm. for this. So that's cool. That's yeah. very badass. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, God bless everyone. We've resolved nothing. <laughs> we've we've resolved nothing. Chris Wayne saved the yeah. drama department. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's a Christmas miracle. I think we resolved that a Christmas Carol is probably going to stick around. Yeah, probably, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, as I as I mentioned on a previous episode, I, I believe that a millennia from now it will be replaced by Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square or at the Square, right. which is uh, a still the same. It's like the very same. derivative it's like of this. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 the you know evolution. For people who have not listened to our episode from two weeks ago, where we where we talked about uh, cheesy Christmas movies, um, I do maintain once again. Please go watch Dolly Parton's A Christmas at the Square. I, I'm at the point now where I feel like I, I can recommend it. It is it is an experience. It's it so is, effed it's up. <laughs> it's an experience. You cannot deny that it's not. It's it's, an, it's certainly an experience. It will. No, you will a lot never of things are. It is an experience. <laughs> um, is I just um. <laughs> there's a whole episode about it um and it is yeah it is an experience it is um it it is if if nothing else just to make it actually relevant to what we're talking about today it does show the the level of enduringness of dickens original tale because it, it this is very very derivative of what dickens was trying to do in Dolly's version, so and I think she's actually done a straight adaptation before too, but I don't. But that's not what this is. This is, this is it's it's something. <laughs> it's something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, anyway, I guess uh, Palindrome Hannah, where can people find you? Because I'm sure you'll be tweeting all about this, tweeting up a storm because um, you're you're so big on Twitter now. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can follow me on Twitter to see if I'll actually tweet it than ever um, at Hanley Rogers. But also just, you know, donate to your local food bank. Which will uh, Feeding America once again linked in the show notes of this episode as it, as it has been all all holiday season for us. And Katya. Uh, per use, you can find me on Instagram at just that nerd kid and technically on Twitter where I tweet roughly once every four years now. I think is what the average is on the second fort on, on the second blue moon under the <laughs> right, so yeah, like, yeah. Oh, for a second I thought you were going to do like on the second day of Christmas oh, no, no. I'm only get on Twitter right now to prove to Hannah and Mav that I occasionally do in fact log into Twitter um, <laughs> is that a useful use of my time probably not do I have a lot of time on my hands because we're still we're still in lockdown and not allowed to go anywhere absolutely Mm-hmm. And if you really want to follow someone who doesn't tweet, Wayne. Yeah, that would be me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I even like my uh, my Instagram posts were were linked to my account, and then I had to reboot my phone or whatever, and that link went down, and I just never restored it. So you don't even see that there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they want to follow you on Instagram, but on Instagram, uh, what is it? Tetrock twenty twelve uh, is my name there. I'm still doing my daily photos. So mm-hmm. there's that, and my blog, which is is linked in the show notes. So absolutely. 
And you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where we post calls for comments talking about what we're going to be talking about next week. You can weigh in. You can give us your thoughts on topics. You can weigh in on this show. Please, what are your thoughts on A Christmas Carol? Let us know in the comments. And if you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell you get podcasts from and do us a favor. Leave us a five star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show, especially if you don't just leave us a rating. If you write us a review, giving us your thoughts on, you know, just what you like about the show. Why are you know? I don't have a I don't have a good Christmas carol-y thing. You know, I want a review of I want a review that just says, you know, uh, quirky little Marxist show, eugenics bad, and razzleberry dressing. <laughs> That's what I want to say. Someone write that for me. I, I will thank you profusely. And if you give us a five star review that says that, that helps other people find the show, makes us more popular. And Christmas, which is what it's all about Christmas and presents, you know. Um, Anyway, uh, also subscribe to us on YouTube. Our YouTube show is exactly this show, but with pictures of, of the content that we're talking about. It's actually really, really fun to follow around. Um, if you look at the one from a couple of weeks ago, you can see the clips of Dolly Parton's Christmas at the Square, which is oh, interesting. <laughs> I'm telling you, it, it, it's interesting. <laughs> um, anyway. On top of that, I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song, Billy Ever Happily and Playing Us Out. I'd like to thank you at home for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Or maybe Razzleberry Dress.